Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softweb Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Softweb Radio. I'm your host this afternoon, Steve Balistrieri, Softweb Radio on time, on target. We have a very special guest with us this afternoon, Chris Wallace. Everyone knows him from Fox News Sunday show. Uh, He's written a new book, Countdown Bin Laden, the untold story of the 247-day hunt to bring the mastermind of 9-11 to justice. 
Chris, welcome to the podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time today. Well, I'm really delighted to be with you. And having written this book, Countdown Bin Laden, and obviously SEAL Team 6 plays a big role in it, uh, I, I am, and I spent a lot of time talking to Admiral McRaven and to a couple of the members of the team that raided the compound in Abbottabad, Will Chesney, and especially Rob O'Neill. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be talking to, to you and to your audience. Well, we really appreciate it. You know, it's funny because I, I know that, you know, you had written the book to be released <clears throat> on the, uh, you know, around the 20th anniversary of 9-11, you know, and then with all the fiasco, what happened the last few weeks and how everything kind of fell apart uh, with our withdrawal from there, you know, um, I, the thing that stands out about this book is now this shows how things are supposed to be done, how when everyone works together and, you know, all the pieces are put together, this is how it should be. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I, I absolutely wrote the book intending it to come out on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. It never occurred to me that the thugs, the killers that were in charge of Afghanistan on 9-11-2001 are back in charge of Afghanistan on 9-11-2021. And, and, you know, it made me think about this book, which is a, a, a celebration and uh, an account of of what happened and how we took down bin Laden, it made me think about how does that fit into the war, particularly with the end. And I think I came away with two thoughts. First of all, that, you know, for all the feelings, and I'm sure a lot of your your listeners, are, you know, are, are mad or frustrated uh, about how it's all ended. The fact is that that we did accomplish our prime mission in Afghanistan, didn't do everything, but, you know, why did we go in in the first place? We went in there to get bin Laden, to decapitate al-Qaeda, and to protect the homeland from another terror attack on Afghanistan. And we accomplished all of those things and protect the homeland from terror in Afghanistan for 20 years. And then the second point, which is exactly what you're saying, if the last month has been a case study of just everything being mishandled, both from a, uh, a political side, an intel side, and a, and a military side, not necessarily the performance of the military, but uh, the position they were put in and what they had to do, um, the, the, the bin Laden mission is exactly the opposite. It's a case study of the intel community being absolutely, uh, you know, just so persistent, so just sticking to the to the mission and going through one dead end after another until they found this compound in Abbottabad. The political community, I think, doing really an excellent job of considering all the options, all the risks, uh, and, and coming to a, a, a really thoughtful and considered and meticulous conclusion. And then especially the, the remarkable job that Admiral McRaven did in, in conceiving of this mission and then putting the right team together and then the performance of the Navy SEALs when they went into the compound. So it's a case study, uh, as you say, of when everything goes, is done right. Yeah, you know, and the thing that stood out about this book is, you know, uh, I mean, we all know how, it, how it's going to end. You know, the, 
as uh, the old saying goes, the guy gets the girl in the end. Well, we all know how this is going to end, but the intriguing part about this book is the farther in you get, I think the more the reader, as even somebody who knows a lot of the background, gets pulled in because you had some really well-documented access to guys from CIA, which is very rare. Uh, and, you know, the State Department, of course, Leon Panetta, the guys from the military. Uh, how difficult was it to get them to buy into this book? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for that. And and let me say, I mean, that's my idea. This is the, my second book I've written. I first wrote a book about Truman's decision to drop the bomb on Hiroshima came out last year called Countdown 1945. And, you know, my feeling was that I think history, I think history is this going to sound uh, like I'm uh, a little over my skis here, but I do think history too often is written the wrong way because we write it like, well, okay, we know the ending. Now let's try to explain how it happened. Well, that's, you know, think if you were doing a, a mystery novel or a thriller that's exactly the wrong way to do it. And the fact is, as you know, they, they come, the three members of the counterterrorism center at, at, at uh, the CIA come to Panetta on August 27th, 2010, and say, you know, we've had all these false leads, but we think we have traced a guy that may be uh, bin Laden's courier back to, and they don't call it a compound, they call it a fortress in Abbottabad, Pakistan. And then, you know, to go through that and as they're trying to, to to get develop more intel and then they take it to President Obama and all of his team is trying to figure out what to do. And they don't you know, they don't even tell the secretary of defense Gates and they don't even tell Hillary Clinton, who's secretary of state, because it's so closely held. And then in late January, they bring in McRaven and the military. The point is that at each of these points, they didn't know how the story was going to end. In fact, when. Uh, Obama decides on April 28, 2011, uh, actually he made the decision that night, but he announces it to his staff on, on April 29th, Friday morning. Uh, you know, he says it, it's a 50-50 proposition here. Some people are saying it's 70%, some people are saying it's 50%, and he goes, you know what, forget the percentages, this is 50-50. He's either there or he's not there. And then of course, when the SEALs are going in, and, and I have talked particularly to Rob O'Neill, he said, I said to him, how dangerous did you think this mission was? And he said, one white ticket. And I said, excuse me? He said, yeah, suicide mission. Uh, we figured if bin Laden was there and they weren't sure he was going to be, that they weren't coming home. He said, either when we hit the compound, it's going to be booby trapped and blow up. Or when we go into the house where we think bin Laden might be, you know, he'll have all kinds of bodyguards and they'll take us out. And they were willing to do it anyway, and we can talk about that. Uh, but but they thought. So my point is that there was there were tremendous unknowns. There was tremendous tension throughout this process. And what I tried to do in the book, and and you know you really you pitched it better than I could. Is it's a history thriller, and as you, even if you know the ending, I promise. And I, if you read it, you you know the last hundred pages, you're on the edge of your seat, saying what happens next because. It, it is, it's a hell of an adventure story. In terms of how I got them, you know, I think, I think my timing was really right. I mean, first of all, I knew a bunch of these guys because I did inter interviewed them all the, over the years. 
on Fox News Sunday. And, you know, I think they trusted me. But the other thing is, it's like any investigative thing. You have to you have to build up trust and people have to have the sense you're not in it to try to do something sensationalizing or to get the story wrong. You're really in it to tell their story. And so I started with some of the people I knew better and I thought would be more accessible. And after, and I would, you know, I'd interview them for three or four hours and at length. And then, you know, and then I'd say, well, can you put me in touch with, uh, and, and I think the word spread, Hey, uh, Wallace really wants to tell the story, right? Really wants to, get not only the big story, but all the little details, all the little anecdotes, right? And, I, and, and, you know, 10 years later, it's not as classified as it was. And in addition, I think, and again, I was doing all these interviews before everything went wrong, but I think people took justifiable pride in what they had pulled off here. And I think they wanted to share the story. Yeah, you know, it's funny because, um, you know, Obviously, as you're reading the book, you're learning new things because of the conversations that you were able to tap into, especially with Leon Panetta. You know, he's such a fascinating character. Never met him or talked to him, but you feel like you have a lot better feel for what his personality is like after reading the book. And I love the the part that you wrote in there. You know, when he took over CIA, he he took a an apartment in an attic with just his dog, and it's like you don't picture the head of the CIA living in an attic. Uh, I thought that was fascinating. Were there any other big surprises for you as you're you know researching this story? Well, yeah, I mean, but you see, that this is funny because you know I'm I'm. My day job is I'm a reporter, and now I've, I'm sort of moonlighting as a historian. And when I wrote the book about 1945, uh, you know, I loved doing it. And it's a great story about Truman on the day he becomes president in 45, discovers the existence of the Manhattan Project, even though he'd been vice president for three months. Nobody had even told him about it. But my frustration was that, you know, in, in writing about Truman and uh, George Marshall and Robert Oppenheimer and all of these people, Paul Tibbetts, the, uh, the, the command pilot on the Enola Gay, you know, they're all gone. And I desperately wanted to be able to say, so what happened in that meeting? And what were you thinking? And, you know, and, 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 and I couldn't, obviously. I had history books and I had their diaries and I had letters and memoirs and stuff, but I couldn't talk to them. And one of the reasons that I decided to my second book to write it about something where people weren't gone is so I could have exactly these conversations. And when you talk about Panetta in the attic, it probably was the third conversation. You know, cause what do you, 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 I, I didn't know to ask, but, uh, you know, we're, so I'm talking about the mission with him and all of this stuff and what was going right, what was going wrong and his frustrations. And, and at some point in, and this is just the advantage, probably three or four hours in, during our, our last conversation, something comes up about where he was living. And I said, well, tell me about it. And it turns out it's a, it's basically a studio. He had an old friend. I mean, he, you know, remember this guy had been, you know, he'd been a congressman. He'd been the chief of staff to Clinton. He'd left. He'd gone out to California where he runs the Panetta Institute with his wife, Sylvia. And suddenly Obama asked him to come back and be CIA director. And, you know, so, I mean, he's finished. He's in his 70s. He doesn't. And, and you know, so he's not going to go. He's not moving his family. His wife is staying there. His kids are grown. 
And so he calls a friend and says, hey, can I stay with you? And he ends up in an attic <laughs> apartment with his, his dog, Bravo. Uh, and, you know, they were able to put all kinds of secret devices in there so that he could have classified uh, phone calls from the attic. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, it's those kinds of details that I think add so much to the story. Um, you know, there were, there were a bunch. I think there were surprises on every page. Um, you know, I'll give you a, a, a couple of examples. So if anybody has seen the movie Zero Dark Thirty, um, and I'm sure a bunch of you have, this is the real story. That was the Hollywood version. And that story is, you know, it's good, but I actually think the real story is, as usual, much more interesting. And there was a Maya character. If you remember the movie, mm -hmm. the main character, Jessica Chastain, was known as Maya. Now, Maya is not a real name, uh, but but she she was this kick ass uh, operative analyst for the CIA. She was not over in Pakistan or any of that. She was she was at headquarters in Langley, but she became the expert in the Pakistan Afghan department on uh, on bin Laden. And and as they brought in the seals uh, in April, uh, you know, so really in the last month, April of 2011, she becomes the liaison between the seals and uh, and the CIA. Now, before I tell the story, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? You can sure go ahead. <laughs> OK, so anyway, you know the story I'm about to tell. So yes. She, she ends up in Jalalabad, which is where the, the, the mission was going to be launched from, right on the eastern, eastern Afghanistan, right across the border from Pakistan. And she's there when the mission goes down. And now it comes back and the, the SEALs come back. And they had really formed an attachment with Maya because, you know, one, she, she was there with them on the front lines. And I, I never met her. I talked to one guy who had never talked before, who was her boss, Gary who was the head of the Pakistan-Afghan department, and he described Maya to me, and also the SEALs did. But, you know, she's a t tough lady. So in any case, they come back, they bring the body bag with, uh, with bin Laden in it into the hangar, and uh, one of the SEALs says to O'Neill, who took uh, bin Laden out, says, hey, you got to have something for Maya. So he hands her his clip from his gun, which had 30 rounds in it, except it had 27 because he had put three bullets in bin Laden's head and, and says, hey, have you got room for this? And she said, yeah. So then McRaven himself literally takes the, the, the corpse out of the body bag and he lays it out. And Maya walks over to it and looks down and says, well, I guess I'm out of a fucking job. Turns around and walks away. <laughs> I, I love that line in the book. I love that story so much. And it's not, a, you know, it's not in the movie. And I'm thinking, why wasn't that in the movie? It's such a great moment. <laughs> what I have to ask you, though, uh, I don't know if it was just coincidence, but it was like almost 200 pages in to the book before I heard the slightest mention of the vice president, who's now our president, President Biden. And, you know, we've, we've heard all this uh, I, I thought it was a lot of political back, you know, backstabbing, whatever, that he was totally against this operation. But in reading the book, he actually was against this, wasn't he? Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting. Uh, 
I'm writing this book while he's running for president. And, you know, I kept thinking, well, I got to speak to Biden. I got to speak to Biden. And nobody mentioned him. I mean, when I'd be talking to people at the CIA about what was going on in the White House, they wouldn't mention him. When I talked to top people in the White House and I talked to everybody, I, I didn't. The one person I didn't speak to was Obama, but I spoke to all of his top aides. Everybody, you know, I'll just uh, Tom Donnelly is the national security advisor. John Brennan is the chief counterterrorism advisor. Nick Rasmussen and on and on. Nobody mentioned Biden. And the one the one time that they mentioned him was in the final meeting that he had with the president had with his National Security Council on April 28th, Thursday, April 28th. And he's going around the table. And first he goes to Biden and Biden says, uh, you know, I don't think we should do it. One, we don't have enough intel. It's not it's circumstantial. It's not conclusive. And two, I, I worry about um the fact that that this is really going to screw up our relationship with Pakistan. And we were depending on Pakistan at the time. That was a major supply route for, you know, all of our troops uh, in, in Afghanistan. So he was against it. And this is a story that's never been told before. And they go next to Gates and Gates is against it. And I think a lot of it for Gates was that he had been the executive assistant to the CIA director back in 1980 when they did Operation Eagle Claw, the, the failed rescue mission for the Iran hostages. And he just had this sense, something always goes wrong in these missions. And he'd seen, you know, uh, American soldiers had died. Uh, It had had really probably uh, cratered Jimmy Carter's chances for reelection. And he just didn't think it it was worth the risk, particularly since they didn't have a hard, hard proof. Anyway, so when, when the meeting is over, Gates and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mike Mullen, get in a car to be driven back to the Pentagon. And as I'm sure you know, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, Gates didn't and doesn't think much of Biden. And in fact, in his memoir, he said he's been wrong about every major foreign policy decision for the last 40 years. Well, it turned out that Gates had been saying that when he was defense secretary and Biden was vice president. So when they're in the car on the way back to the Pentagon, uh, Mullen says, wait a minute, Bob. You, you know, you, you keep saying uh, that Biden's been wrong about every major foreign policy decision for 40 years, and you just voted with him against the right. So <laughs> it was kind of an open secret and an open joke inside the administration how little Secretary of Defense Robert Gates thought of the vice president. Yeah, you know, in re- reading the book, uh uh, it's changed a lot of my perceptions as well. We were always under the impression that the president was lukewarm about going after bin Laden. But in reading the book, he, he made it their priority in, in 2000, uh, what was it, 2010? Nine. In May of 2009, he has a meeting in the sit room and he says to just a few of them, including Donilon, and uh, Leon Panetta, a couple of others, he says, come up with me to the Oval Office. And it's not that, you know, the CIA wasn't still looking, but the trail had gone kind of cold. They, they kept looking, but, but you know, it wasn't. And, and, and he says to Panetta, I want bin Laden to go to the front of the line. I want, and I want you to report to me regularly on where we stand in the hunt for bin Laden. And, and Panetta said, look, you know, the way bureaucracies work in Washington, the president of the United States puts a fire under me 
as CIA director, I'm go, I then go back to my staff and I put a fire under them. And in fact, he, from then on, for, and this went on from May of 2009 until they give him the, first, the big lead in August of 2010, every week he would have a meeting with the top people in the Afghan-Pakistan department. Where are we on bin Laden? Even if it was that they really had nothing new, but you know, that just put pressure on the bureaucracy. Yeah. Do, do you regret not being able to talk to President Obama about this? Sure. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I, I tried and tried and tried. And, and you know, particularly why I regret it a little bit is there are some characters in this book that are larger than life. And I'm delighted that you really enjoyed the way we portrayed Panetta, because he's one of, to me, one of the the, the stars of the book and one of the stars of the whole operation. And he's a CIA director. He's, you know, a big, burly Italian, uh, quick to, to laugh, big belly laugh. His nose crinkles up when he laughs and quick to, you know, to, to drop four F-bombs, you know, just big, big emotions. <laughs> Sounds uh, like my family. <laughs> yeah, po- positive and negative. And, uh, and, and, and McRaven. I think is another, you know, he, to me, he's Captain America. And at one point, Obama said about him, you know, if they were making a movie of this, he would be the star and he would play himself. Uh, I, I just have such regard and admiration for Bill McRaven. The, but the interesting thing is that Obama and, you know, this kind of goes along with what I think most of our impression of him is, where a lot of these guys were more animated or, you know, more uh, out. more extroverted, Obama played it close to the vest. And, and, you know, there weren't people I'd say, well, tell me what Obama did there. Or how, what is, you know, what was this? And they basically say he asked a lot of questions, you know, and he gave us a very terse, I want you to do this, or I want you to look into this. There wasn't a lot of, of, of of big outward emotions or anecdotes. And so, yeah, I would have loved to have had um, the, to ask him basically what's the, in, in, the interior conversation, what's going on in your head is this is happening and that's happening. But his people said, you know, and it was true that he had written a memoir that came out just as I was writing the book. And they said he wants the chapter on bin Laden to speak for itself. So, um, you know, we took what we could from that. And I took the what I could from talking to all the people that were in the room with him Um but yeah, that you know, that was a, it wasn't perfect. That was a, there was a frustration uh, about not being able to talk to him. Well, I, I love the bit at the end of the raid where the president's on the phone with Admiral McRaven, and McRaven says, "You know, uh, we're, we're pretty sure this is the guy. You know, he's six foot six foot four. Uh, you know." We have a, a six foot two Navy SEAL. We laid him down, and he's obviously taller than him. And the president's comeback, I thought, was just classic. <laughs> yeah, said, he says so. So, so I mean, literally, they they McRaven, and and it's interesting. It's interesting the things that people corrected me on because I, at one point, I, you know, I'm talking to him, and I said, well, you know, and then the SEALs took the body out of the body bag, and he said to me, no, no. I took the body out of the body bag and he said, and I was the one because he was kind of all, you know, folded up that, you know, stretched him out. So he would be his full length. And then he turns to a Navy SEAL and and they knew bin Laden was six, four. And they said to this Navy SEAL, he says, son, how how, how big are you? And he says, 
I'm six two. He said, lie down next to the corpse. And the guy, he's and even the, the Graven tells the story. He says the guy looks at looks at the Graven. He's the admiral. He's the boss. But he kind of looks at him like, you want me to do what? But of course, he's the boss. So he lies down next to him. And McRaven sees, yeah, he's about two inches. The corpse is two inches taller than the, the than the seal. So he calls uh, the president up and he says, yep, you know, I really do think it's it's him. Now, you know, they looked at the face, but frankly, most of the face had been blown away by the three shots in the head. And he said he he's about two inches taller than the six foot two inch seal. And he says, let me get this straight. You had 50 million dollars for a, a stealth Blackhawk helicopter, but you didn't have 10 dollars for a tape measure. <laughs> and then the story con- continues, which is that he finally he gets, <laughs> comes back and he ends up having a meeting. And this says a lot about both of them. He ends up having a meeting in the Oval Office with the president and the president you know, is there at the resolute desk and he goes back behind the desk and he opens a drawer and he comes out and he has had a plaque made, uh, you know, a beautiful wooden plaque and mounted on it is a gold plated tape measure, you know, as a kind of the, 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 you know, the honor of the tape measure, the order of the tape measure. So McRaven thinks, well, this isn't really for me. This is for the special operations. So he gives it to the special operations forces is that a present and a, you know, a, a statement of, of gratitude from the president. And a few weeks later, he's at his headquarters in Fort Bragg, and there's a knock on the door, and he opens it, and there's a fellow there, and he says, "I, I hear you. You know, the president heard you gave away the tape measure, and I, you know, he feels like, oh, maybe I'm in trouble." He said, "No, no, I didn't give it away. I, I thought it was for the unit, so I gave it to the unit." And he said, "Well, that's what the president understood. Here's another one because we want you to have it for you and your family." <laughs> That's awesome. I just think that's that's one of the awesome stories that came out of this. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you, I know you, you told the story of some of the families as well, especially there was a real poignant part about, I'm, I know I'm going to butcher her last name, Jessica Ferensky. Is that how you say it? That's exactly right. Jessica Ferensky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how did you, you know, how did you find her for this? Well, there are websites where you know, relatives of victims mm-hmm. of 9-11. And, and she was on the website. And, and, and you know, we, we thought, look, people know how horrible 9-11 was, but we thought we needed to put a, a human face on it. Uh, and, and, and so we found Jessica Ferenczi. And, and the story very briefly is that she was a New York City cop and she was in love with and, and, and lived with another New York City cop, Jerome Dominguez. And on 9-11, she was testifying in court, which if you know New York City, the, 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 the local courts are all downtown, right near Ground Zero. And uh, her, her, her you know, to say, her fiance, her kind of unofficial husband says, hey, look, I'll meet you for breakfast down there. And this is 9-11, and then suddenly the plane goes into the first tower. And she immediately knows, knowing Jerome, that he's going to go to the tower. That's just what he's going to do. And she tries to reach him, and, of course, all the cell phones go out because everybody in the world is trying to call everybody else. And so she wants to go to the towers, too. And uh, she's told by one of her superiors, no, you got to go guard the courts and guard the prisons because we don't know – what this attack is going to be. 
and she never sees him again, never hears from him again. And, you know, part of the story we tell is the tremendous sense of loss and the tremendous emptiness that she felt and the partial but certainly not complete sense of closure she got from bin Laden being taken out. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, the way you weave that into the book was excellent because, you know, we're talking about, you know, the clinical side of things where we're looking at it as a military operation. But then we forget about, you know, the human element, the people who suffered on that day. And I thought that part of the book really brought it home. That's why we were there. That's why we went to Afghanistan. That's why the SEALs are going into Abbottabad. And, you know, it's still an open wound for a lot of those families, especially for her. She had a really rough time of it. Uh, I thought that was a great part of the book. Well, th- thank you very much. The, you know, it's interesting. I, I was when I was talking to Rob O'Neill and I said, you know, and he said to me that this was a suicide mission. And <clears throat> then he said, I'm doing this for the woman who went to work that day on 9-11 and, you know, was working up on the 90th story of the one of the World Trade Center towers and the plane hits the tower and she's faced with the choice of an inferno, 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit inside and looking out the window at the ground 90 stories below and decides jumping is the better alternative. And, you know, that that, that you're exactly right. I mean, it is... A, a thriller, a spy thriller, a, a, you know, a, a, a political thriller, a military thriller. But we can't ever forget that, you know, this is a real life. And what, 22,000, I guess I saw on, on Saturday, 2,977 fellow Americans were killed in New York and Shanksville and the Pentagon. And we can never forget that. Well, Chris, I I could sit here and talk to you all day long about the book and all the characters in it. I know you're pressed for time. We don't want to hold you, but I really want to thank you uh, for taking the time to talk with us here at Software Radio today. uh, This was really enjoyable for us. The book was fantastic. Again, I want to reiterate to all of our listeners out there, Countdown Bin Laden by Chris Wallace, along with Mitch Weiss. This is a great addition to your library. You will learn a lot of what went on behind the scenes. And Chris, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate it. Well, thank, thank you so much for, for having me on, Steve. And, and I just, you know, I know we say it and we say it glibly, but when you, when you do the research and you talk to the people in an operation like this, uh, I just want to say to all your listeners, uh, and from the bottom of my heart, I know I speak for every American, when I say it, thank you for your service. We, you know, one of the things that I think about the SEALs in this story is, you know, we, we the vast majority, 99.9% of us couldn't do it, wouldn't do it. And thank God there is that one-tenth of 1%, or probably less than that, of, of Americans who are are capable and and ready and willing to put their lives on the line to protect our security and our freedom. And I am just so grateful. Well, that sums it up perfectly, Uh, Chris. Once again, thank you. We really appreciate it. And before we go, if 
if you want it for our listeners out there, if you want to get SoftRep on your phone, download our free mobile app to get easy access to our articles, podcasts, and gear reviews, all perfectly formatted to your device. Please subscribe to SoftRep.com to get access to our library of eBooks and our exclusive team room forums and content available on all Apple and Android devices. Folks, thanks for listening this afternoon. Thanks again, Chris. Uh, we really appreciate it. And please, uh, you know, uh, the next time a new countdown book comes out, let us know because we'd like to get on the list and have you back on the podcast again. Yeah, I just want to say that uh, I was talking to somebody earlier today, you know, and I've done uh, Countdown 1945 and Countdown uh, Bin Laden. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking for the next one. And somebody said, I got a great idea for you. I said, what's that? He said, how about Countdown Britney Spears about her conservatorship? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that'll be the next one. You know, a, a good friend of mine who was a former Navy SEAL used to be Britney's security. Um, and uh, he, he told me quite a few really interesting stories about working for her that we can't repeat. Well, listen, on, that sounds like a whole other podcast, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Chris. Thanks again, man. We really appreciate it. And uh, all the best with book sales and look forward to seeing you on television on Sunday. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs) Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 